Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast with me, Christine Burns. Earlier this month, I was responsible for organising a series of conferences in North West England looking at the gender equality duty and what it means for NHS trusts. A rich variety of speakers contributed, including leading figures from the Strategic Health Authority, the Department of Health, the Equality and Human Rights Commission and a range of community stakeholders. Many of these presentations were recorded, and I'll be featuring some of those in coming episodes. For our first session, staged in the conference centre at the Liverpool Women's Hospital, the community stakeholder perspective was presented by Karen Moore, who is a policy officer for the Women's Resource Centre in London. First, we'll hear from Karen about the centre's work and why violence against women is a strategic health and gender equality issue. After her talk, I also spoke about the issues with her colleague, Darlene Corrie. But first, let's hear what Karen had to say. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here today and to have the opportunity um, to talk to you. Um, What I'm going to focus on is um, violence against women um, as a health issue. And I'll just give you an overview. I'll just say a bit about the Women's Resource Centre and who we are. Then I'm going to look overall about gender inequality um, as it stands in the UK with a few um, statistics. Um, And I'm going to um, focus on why violence against women is a gender equality issue and why it's a health issue so we can really um, unpick some of that. And then I'm going to focus on specialist women's voluntary organisations, for example, rape crisis centres, um, and their role in supporting women in local communities who've experienced violence, um, and the importance of seeing these um, organisations as supporting your work in health um, as they're supporting the mental and emotional health needs of women. I'll look at some of the policy drivers and targets um, around this, and then looking at how PCTs and NHS organisations can address um, violence against women. Okay, so the Women's Resource Centre is um, is an umbrella body that supports the women's sector to be more effective and sustainable. Uh, We provide training, information, one-to-one support um, on a range of organisational development issues, and we also lobby decision-makers on behalf of the women's not-for-profit sector for better representation and funding. Um, We also do research and campaigning work. Uh, Most recently, we work with Rape Crisis England and Wales, um, to highlight the state of the uh, rape crisis sector, which is currently facing um, a, a funding crisis, which I'll talk about a bit later. Okay, so I just wanted to provide an overview of gender equality in the UK, because I think one of the things we see and we struggle with is that there's a widespread perception that we've now achieved equality. In fact, you know, women's rights have gone too far now, haven't they? Um, and what, we've, what it's resulted in is a loss of a specific focus on the needs of women, Um, in spite of the fact that um, discrimination is still really widespread um, in in the UK. So, for example, we've got looking at rape conviction rates. I think the figure now stands at 5.7%, so it's increased slightly since 2004, but that's hardly anything to sort of get very excited about. If poverty were measured on the basis of individual income, 52% of married women would be under the income support poverty line compared to just 11% of men. Female graduates earn on average 15% less than their male counterparts um, and at, the age of the t- at the age of 24, and this gender pay gap widens with age. And women um, are underrepresented in local, um, local govern- government, regional government, and central government. 
and the situation for black and minority ethnic women um, is even worse in terms of representation at the decision-making level. And that, with, with the new government agenda to devolve power to local communities, that really does have um, specific implications for women. So why is violence against women a gender equality issue? Um, well, the UN has defined violence against women as violence that is directed at a woman because she is a woman or that affects women disproportionately. Um, it's one of the key causes and consequences of women's inequality, and it cuts across all communities, ages, um, races, cultures, but it manifests in different ways, and some of the manifestations include rape and sexual abuse, female genital mutilation, forced and early marriage, stalking, crimes in the name of honour, trafficking and sexual exploitation, sexual harassment and domestic violence. Each year, across the UK, three million women experience violence and there are many living with legacies of abuse that they experienced in the past. It's conservatively estimated that 80,000 women suffer rape every year and 300,000 women experience sexual assault. At least 32% of children, mostly girls, experience some form of childhood sexual abuse. And this next stat is slightly wrong, actually, and it's 66,000 women living in the UK have undergone female gen genital mutilation, but around 20,000 girls under 16 are currently at risk. Finally, in relation to mental health um, and prisons, at least 50% of women um, in the mental health system are survivors of violence and abuse, and I would imagine this is actually quite um, an underestimate. Violence against women has significant impacts on women in terms of their long-term physical and mental health. And this includes the long-term effects of dealing with historic childhood sexual abuse. Physical injuries may include bruises, burns, broken bones and teeth, damage to hearing or vision, cuts, scratches, uh, miscarriage, a range of other things. And whilst some of these may heal with time depending on their severity, the mental and emotional impact of violence against women is long-lasting and profound. And it can lead to a range of other other health problems, particularly where sexual violence such as rape is a factor. And some of these long-term effects include post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety and panic attacks, depression, social phobia, substance misuse, obesity, eating disorders, self-harm and suicide. It's also violence um, that women experience is the leading cause, cause of women's morbidity and is the biggest barrier to women's health and social well-being. It's also costly to the state. Um, a report out recently from the New Philanthropy Capital um, estimated that violence against women costs society £40 billion each year. Rape victims are far more likely than other victims, than other vi victims of violent crime to experience long-term mental health problems. Um, and the cost um, of each rape is about £76,000. And the cost of sexual violence to society was £8.5 billion in 2003 to 4. Much of that cost is made up of lost outputs, lost output and cost to the health service, um, resulting from the long-term issues faced by um, victims. The Cross-Government Action Plan on Sexual Violence and Abuse states that addressing problems early should help prevent some of these long-term costs. So it really is in the interest of health services um, to start addressing some of these issues. The gender equality duty places an obligation on public bodies to identify and meet the needs of women, men and transgender people and ensuring that these are reflected in policy and practice, as we've heard. There's a number of ways that the bod public bodies can do this, but I'm going to first focus on the need to support specialist women's voluntary organisations who support the long-term mental health and emotional needs of women who've experienced violence. 
and focusing on them because of the vast amount of expertise and experience they have in meeting women's need in the local communities they work in and because they've been part of the landscape of service provision for over 30 years. Um, specialist women's organisations are those which are run by and for women. They usually provide um, women-only space and use an approach that seeks to acknowledge the emotional needs of women um, and they have an understanding of women's discrimination um, and, the, uh, and the power imbalances that are more likely to place them in contexts which are violent and or oppressive. They offer a holistic <coughs> approach which can deal with a range of cross-cutting issues and um, they, they're able to address the long-term needs of women. So as I mentioned, this is um, rape crisis centres I'm talking about and other similar organisations that provide support in the community to women who've experienced violence. These organisations were set up to address the gaps in mainstream services um, which, which cannot or will not address these issues. And they provide added value because they offer long-term support, support regardless of when the violence or abuse was experienced. They're holistic, as I mentioned, able to address cross-cutting issues such as substance misuse, eating disorders and self-harm. They provide safe women-only space in which women can begin to heal from their experiences. And research that we carried out found that women wouldn't want to come to a service if it was mixed gender. They're women-centered, um, and so they have a needs-led approach to service provision. And they're, and they're independent, which is really crucial, particularly for marginalized groups of women, women from um, black and minority ethnic communities or LBT communities who may have had negative experiences with statutory services or may find um, organizations in, in the voluntary sector um, less intimidating. And it's important to note that um, the way that rape crisis centers works is quite different from sexual assault and referral centers, um, which are statutory-led and focus on ensuring a high, um, a high quality criminal justice response to, um, to, to violence. But we think that to, be, to have an effective service provision, SARC should be provided alongside rape crisis centers. Um, these organizations also provide value for money. And I'm just going to um, run through a quick case study to highlight one example. Um, and this is um, the Rape and Sexual Abuse, Abuse Support Centre, which is based in London. The total funding received by the Rape and Sexual Abuse Support Centre in 2005 to 6 was just under 23k. However, a, a cost-benefit analysis of the work found that the total economic cost of delivering their services was over £82,000. The difference was covered by the leverage achieved by organisations like the Rape and Sexual Abuse, Abuse Support Centre and their ability to make an impact beyond their scale. And the director, um, the, the director says, we are a value for money service because our clients are able to come off benefits, get back into the workplace, reduce and in some cases stop self-harming, reduce and stop alcohol abuse, get their children out of care, reduce and stop psychosomatic illnesses, reduce and reduce incidences of crime, and this is a huge cost benefit. By helping women live free of violence, they're supporting them to rebuild their confidence and also access opportunities um, that they wouldn't have previously had, um, had, had access to. However, um, rape crisis centres are closing at an alarming rate, um, and because of a lack of funding, there's a real risk that the, that, um, that the sector could be wiped out. In 1984, there were a pitiful 68 rape crisis centres in England and Wales, and today there's just 38. Um, recent research we carried out on the remaining rape crisis centres found that they receive referrals from a wide range of agencies, almost all of whom were public bodies, including um, mental health services, GPs, the police, and other health-related agencies. While rape crisis centres have always been marginalised and suffered from underinvestment, 
The sector en masse is now at crisis point. Any further losses of centres and their specialist expertise will undoubtedly impact heavily on survivors of violence, their families and society as a whole. Loss of these centres will also result in an extra demand and burden on statutory services, in part because women are more likely to access those services as a last resort when their problems have escalated to crisis point. The NHS, as, as I've mentioned, it, it, it does have a role in referring on to these centres, so without having, if they're not there, there won't be anybody to refer on to. Um, and, and just to, to go back to the figure of 8.5 billion, this is what sexual violence is costing society, the majority of which is related to health. So we'd really like to see um, kind of a long-term focus on addressing violence in Gates Women, which involves supporting these organisations and recognising that... that their role in, um, in helping with mental health of women. <coughs> Some of the key issues um, and, and the problem resulting in the problems facing um, specialist women's voluntary organisations is failure to prioritise um, violence against women. And what we've, what we've found is that neither central nor local government has really taken responsibility. Um, and this has been exacerbated by the fact that until recent, the recent public service agreements and national indicators in late 2007, there were no targets for sexual violence. Also, because reported rates are consistent, consistently low from locality to locality, um, this has enabled some statutory agencies to ignore violence as a priority for local funding. This is not a, a sustainable position for funders because although sexual violence is a hidden issue, the impacts of it are not. We found in our work that there is a limited understanding by commissioners of the added value of women's organisations and things I was mentioning earlier about provision of women only space, providing holistic services um, and being able to be women-centred and actually meet women's needs. Um, and, and there's a lack of understanding of how this is different from the way generic organisations um, provide services. Women's voluntary organisations um, are struggling to compete with the, the commissioning and procurement agenda, which seems to be favouring um, large generic service providers over sort of small, small specialist organisations. Commissioners really need to be aware of this and not use it as an excuse only to commission from the larger providers. And I'll just talk about a little bit more about that later on. The Department of Health has amassed a large body of evidence uh, to show the endemic proportions of violence against women and the health and social, re social care repercussions of this, as well as how women's mental health issues need specialist gender-specific services. However, this hasn't really translated um, into practice, and the grants programme uh, from the Department of Health is, is largely failing women's organisations. We did an audit that found that women's organisations received just over 2% of grants and that this figure has been falling since we began our audit in 2003-04 to and only uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender organisations fare worse. There's also been a decrease in funding to women's organisations but an increase in funding to generic organisations which are delivering services to women. Um, but these projects don't necessarily have the same expertise as is held within the women's sector. Um, we've also heard from um, our members um, and other women's organisations that there's been problems around the gender equality duty in terms of the way it's being interpreted. Um, and it's being interpreted in quite a gender neutral way. So it's, it's sort of like, well, don't men experience violence as well? And why, are you, why aren't you providing services to men? Now, that's not to say that men don't experience violence, but the nature and the extent is quite different. The gender equality duty makes it clear that single-sex services are legitimate and a failure to acknowledge this could, could end up being a breach of the gender equality duty, although we've, had, um, we've heard of instances where, 
where women's organisations have, um, have decided to provide services to men because they don't know enough about the gender equality duty um, and they, they, they feared losing their funding. So I think the most important point, though, is regardless of the gender equality duty, um, if you're talking about patient-centred care and meeting people's needs, then women actually want to be able to access single-sex services. And um, we conducted a poll um, about women-only services. 97% of the respondents to that poll think it's vital that women who've experienced sexual violence should be able to access a women-only service for support. I've just put a couple of slides up about some of the um, policy drivers um, around, um, around health and that relate to violence against women. So, as I mentioned, a policy framework does exist which acknowledges the clear links between violence and health. Um, in particular, mainstreaming gender and women's mental health, which came out in 2003, was a really good example of um, policy guidance which um, highlighted the links between the social inequalities um, faced by women, particularly around violence abuse, and the mental health aspects of that, and the need for a very specific response to, to address the violence, um, the, the aftermath of those experiences. Um, unfortunately, I, I think it's good work that's happened has been done in a piecemeal way rather than sort of across the board. Um, but the gender equality, uh, the gender equality duty pro provides a really good opportunity to address this. And I'll just say a little bit about the gender equality duty. Sam mentioned the, the two elements of due regard, proportionality and relevance, so I won't go over them again, just to say that um, in terms of proportionality, there is a strong argument for addressing gender violence against women in your gender equality scheme because it is such a huge issue. So it would be good to see that prioritised in your gender equality schemes because it's so widespread it, you know, and, it is, and it is relevant to your work. I've also um, just picked out, in terms of making the links between violence against women and health, I've just sort of picked out a few of the national indicators that came out last year, um, just to kind of have a few ideas about how you could think about it in, in terms of linking in with health. Um, so NI20, which is assault with injury crime rate, um, a reduction in violence against women would the overall cost benefit to the health service in terms of a reduction in number of women receiving, re requiring health care for injuries that they've sustained. Um, the NI26 indicator, which is specialist support for victims of serious sexual offences, um, within this it would be great to see rape crisis centres acknowledged as, as providers of mental health services and to have violence taken on um, as a gender equality issue within the health service. NI32, repeat incidents of domestic violence, and NI34, domestic violence murder. Um, there are already um, plans to um, look at identifying, um, ask, asking questions to pregnant women, I think, about whether they've experienced domestic violence. But if, if this was broadened out um, and there was better identification within the health service of women who've experienced violence, um, that would help to, to um, contribute to a reduction in domestic violence and broader violence and, and potentially um, make an awareness of the need for specialist support to be available. So it's not just that you're identifying uh, that these women are experiencing it, but that there's actually services available um, for you to refer on to. Disaggregating data by gender, um, it's obviously that's another um, important point that other people have touched on, so I won't go on, go on about it again. But um, one of the other key things is... is there's 
there's kind of a wider agenda which is about focusing on efficiency savings um, at the expense of other outcomes such as well-being and safety. Um, and we're really concerned that this will end up having a, a negative impact um, in the long term on both service users and providers. Violence against women is a long-term problem when you consider it takes a woman an average of seven years to leave a violent partner and it requires a long-term solution. The current market-based approach squeezes out small specialist providers which will leave marginalised and vulnerable groups with nowhere to turn. We'd like to see PCTs and other NHS organisations and engaging local um, women's voluntary organisations in service planning, designing and commissioning processes that will encourage diverse providers and improve how they measure value for money in public services. We would advocate that the PCTs work with the Audit Commission's intelligent commissioning model as an effective strategy whereby commissioners maintain a detailed understanding of what their service users need and involve local voluntary organisations in identifying them. Um, develop a good understanding of the market, knowing who can supply particular services at an affordable rate and run an effective procurement process, balancing the need for short-term efficiency gains with longer-term market development objectives. This could include providing a choice of grants or contracts um, and developing a sound base for determining price, having a, a transparent and efficient uh, process prior to awarding the contract or grant and an effective management of the working relationship after the grant or contract has been awarded. We'd like to see a clear analysis of gender equality, gender inequality um, within, within gender equality schemes and believe that the gender equality duty gives us the opportunity to move away from the gender neutral practices um, which assume that equality is achieved by treating everybody the same to a model of working which acknowledges the differences between men and women in terms of their access to power, the roles ascribed to us on the basis of our gender and how this limits or broadens our opportunities to, to participate fully in society and to lead healthy lives. <coughs> Thank you. That was Karen Moore there. Next I spoke to Karen's colleague, Darlene Corrie, who was also with us for the day. I began by asking her a bit more about the Women's Resource Centre. Darlene, Karen spoke a little bit about the, the Women's Resource Centre as an introduction. Can you explain a bit more about what it is and what it does? Sure. Okay, so the Women's Resource Centre is a national umbrella body for women's organisations and we support women's groups to get better at um, feeding in their concerns to government, um, to engage with policy in other ways. Um, we support them with capacity building to be able to do their job and to be able to find funding as well. And we do things like uh, research into the women's sector um, and the issues that they work on. And you're a national organisation based in London? Yep. So um, when we first started our second tier role, um, primarily we were London-based and some of our work is still London-focused, uh, but the rest of our work, all of our policy work is now uh, national. Now, Karen was talking about violence against women and, and why that's important to, to health uh, trusts. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you expand a bit more about that? Sure, okay. So... Violence against women is one of the key issues um, facing women's inequality. So it's both a cause and a consequence of women's inequality. And it's such a huge issue because it impacts on so many women. We're talking three million women um, across the UK each year have experienced or are experiencing some form of violence against women. That's each year. Yep, yep. Um, and 
not only does it impact on so many women and girls, but then it has really quite long-term consequences, most of which are, are health-related. You look at the mental health implications, etc. Um, and it's a particular issue for women because we're talking about a kind of violence that happens to women because they're women. So it's overwhelmingly perpetrated by men, usually men that they know, um, to women and girls. And this usually takes place over a period of time as well? Yes, yes. So often we're not talking about one-off incidences. Um, if you look at domestic violence, that's usually... Um, there's patterns there of escalation and it happens over a period of time. Often it's not just physical. Um, it includes sexual, emotional, financial, etc. Um, but, you know, you're also talking about large amounts of of adult survivors of childhood sexual assault. Um, often they don't have... that. There's not that many services aimed at, at women like this. So a lot of these women will go to women's organisations that are women only, that are independent from the state, um, where they can, they can get the kind of support that they need. Now that, that bring, brings us on to rape crisis centres. You, you've recently published a report called The, the, the Crisis in Rape Crisis. Yeah. What, what's the nature of the crisis? Well, I mean, we would say as backdrop that lots of the women's sector as a whole is facing difficulties in accessing funding. But rape crisis centres in particular are absolutely struggling and there's a few different reasons for this. Um, one is that sexual violence has never really been on the government agenda. So violence against women kind of got split into sexual violence, domestic violence, and then the other forms of violence are only really just being kind of taken notice of too. Um, so we would see that where domestic violence at least has some degree of public and um, political commitment and awareness about it. It still doesn't get anywhere near enough money, actually. Refuges still need more support as well, particularly around the issue of no recourse to public funds. But at least it's up there. You know, there are women's aids in most boroughs, etc. Whereas sexual violence has just completely fallen through the gaps. So there's... Um, there's very little in terms of national or local policies and targets around sexual violence. Um, so rape crisis centres have been struggling for decades um, and they've been lobbying really hard and, and national government has been saying, well, this isn't our remit, go to local government and local government says, oh, well, this isn't, you know, th there's no targets around this. There is one target now, one indicator. The other, the other reason is that... Um, I mean, we've got the appalling conviction rates of rape. Um, they stand at just 5.7% at the moment. And the government has, has been doing a really good job around trying to boost that, but that means that a lot of the attention and the focus and the resources has gone into um, interventions around the criminal justice arm of sexual violence, so, so looking at it as a crime. Um, but in actual fact, that, that means that there's no focus on what happens to the survivors. Where do they go? Where can they access support for the long-term health impacts that result as a result of rape or sexual assault? And, and it is long-term impact. It's not just people turning up to, to casualty to be patched up after violence. And, yep. But it's, it's long-term mental health problems. Absolutely. Okay, so give you an example of um, different kinds of... Um, uh, service provision that's out there. So SARCs are sexual assault referral centres. They do a really good job for what they do, but they've got limits around their work. Um, so they're there to support uh, male and female victims of recent sexual assault. Um, they provide top quality forensic care. Some of them do short-term counselling as well. Um, but a lot of that focus is about the criminal justice aim, trying to get more, more people to report rape. Um, 
whereas rape crisis centres are independent, they provide women-only space, they will support survivors regardless of when the assault happened. So as part of the research that we did, we found out that um, I think about 86% of... Oh, I can't remember the exact <laughs> statistic off the top of my head, even though it was only a few months ago that we put that out. But um, a, a really large number of women that rape crisis centres support are survivors of historic abuse, including childhood sexual assault. And if the rape crisis centres weren't there, who who picked this up? That's a really good question. I mean, victim support, do some support again um, to victims of crime? And again, that's often through police. So, but, but you know, there's most women don't actually report assault. You know, we looked mm-hmm. at, again, in the research, the rape crisis research, um, we asked centres to tell us how many women reported their assaults to police and, the, and it was 10%. So we're talking about women with um, high degrees of complex needs um, who mostly don't, don't report. And there's, there's, there's really nothing else like rape crisis. There's other generic services, but often they may not have the expertise to be able to understand that, that you know, they don't work specifically in violence against women, so they don't have that, that analysis and that framework. Um, and they don't have the years of expertise and experience either. So if you had a magic wand and you could actually have um, the NHS and rape crisis and violence against women organisations working together, yep. how, what would that picture look like? How could they best support each other? Okay. What, what I think would, is, is kind of a minimum step that needs to happen is that the health department, uh, NHS and PCC Trust, need to acknowledge that violence against women is a key issue of gender equality, so they need to look at it under their gender equality duty obligations. Specifically, it's a key issue for health because of the long-term health implications. So I guess, the, you know, with that acknowledgement in mind, it would be about um, finding out what local women's orgs specialising in violence against women, such as rape crisis in your area, um, supporting them, uh, working more closely with them in terms of referrals, commissioning work out to them. Darlene Corey there. In the next episode of Just Plain Sense, it's the men's turn. Peter Baker from the Men's Health Forum joined us when we went to Preston for our final event, and it would be fair to say that he had a lot of ideas for transforming our views about men's health. That's in a few days, of course. Until then, from me, Christine Burns, it's goodbye, and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production.